Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Danny Hill, the monk on a motorbike. Today I'm talking to mindfulness teacher Sonia Russo. Sonia teaches mindfulness to prisoners in jails across the south of England. Here she shares her story of her journey from drug addiction through rehab where she discovered mindfulness and went on to set up an award-winning business teaching some of Britain's toughest prisoners how to find peace behind bars. She's joined by Paul Douglas, who was jailed for 12 years at age 16 and is now a trainee mindfulness teacher himself, working with Sonia. Paul will be telling his full story in the next episode. Sonia, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into mindfulness and this, all this yeah. incredible stuff you're doing. Yeah, um, so I think it's still a shock to the majority of my family and friends that I have this lifestyle now. Um, basically, unknowingly to me, from the ages of uh, 15 to around 30, I was um, poorly with a mental health condition called borderline personality disorder, um, which kind of... Um, although I was kind of high functioning, able to stay in school, able to get jobs, etc., um, the kind of uh, emotional unbalance really affected areas of my life. Um, so I had lots of anxiety and lots of anger issues. Um, and the anxiety, I think, is what led me to go down a path of taking drugs. Um, it's always kind of a chicken and egg situation. You try and figure out what came first, the addiction issues or, you know, the anxiety and you're putting a plaster on it. But I do, I think for me, I, I had anxiety, panic attacks, and I used substances to help me cope with that. And then that became addictive. Um, so from probably about the age of 15, I started using drugs to cope escalated as it does because one drug is not sufficient um and it got to a level where um in my kind of early 20s i was addicted to class a drugs so we're talking at that point i'd done heroin crack cocaine everything and anything everything and anything uh, which i think made it so difficult for my parents and loved ones to figure out what was going on because i was a cross user of substances i didn't have one favorite substance I would yeah use anything and any, anything I could get hold of so it was very hard for people to pinpoint the addiction but certainly the mental health was apparent self-harm um, lots of kind of destructive behaviors um, and yeah that kind of I, I almost learned to live with it because it was all all I knew um, and we tried all sorts of things growing up different kind of therapies medications um, my parents did, yeah, really try to, to get me the help. Um, but it wasn't until later life, and like I said before, I was very high functioning, so I had lots of successes. So I had a very um, successful corporate career, uh, and I was able to balance this, you know, rise up the corporate ladder along with being a very successful drug addict as well, and balancing the two and hiding the two, I think... Um, the way I kind of relate to it is every addict needs to get money uh, to buy their produce. Um, instead of robbing, stealing and thieving, I was using my talents in the corporate sector to get as much money as I could uh, to fund things and, and to, to live my lifestyle. And the, the environment that I was in was in media. Um, so it was a very party kind of 
lifestyle so you could get away with being drunk at your desk at 11 o'clock because you've entertained a brunch client or um, and there was drugs being used and partying so you could hide it for a long time um, but then it all kind of you know certain things had happened my mother had passed away I was a single mother um, dealing with kind of life everything just the drugs then weren't enough and I was uh, yeah very very poorly I had a nervous breakdown um, it was actually work that figured out what was going on they intervened um, in you know I'm lucky it was this day and age because if it was 10 years ago in media you'd have been out the the back door I, I actually I was fired from a previous employer for having panic attacks yeah which was acceptable back then so that would have been 10 11 years ago so they sacked you for having panic yeah, attacks yeah so I was having panic attacks um, it was after my mother had died uh, they phoned me on the day that my mother had died saying oh very sorry but when you're coming back in because you know your account um, needs managing and um, we've still got a business running here and I was just like but I was so caught up in that corporate cycle that I went in a week my mum died unexpectedly as well so it was a shock um, so I was dealing with that and then four days later I went back into work doing my 12 hour stints uh, for a magazine company what were you doing for the business? Um, so I used to do creative solutions marketing. So I used to do all those kind of editorial advertorials, which yeah, the devil to anyone that's a proper journalist. Again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a lot of um, yeah, uh, creative solutions, advertorials in print um, at that stage. Um, and yeah, obviously I was trying to cope with you know bearing my mother. She didn't have a will, sorting out the estate, the shock of her being gone. She was also the primary carer for my daughter because I was unwell. Um, so my mum was her primary carer and suddenly my, so my daughter had lost her mother figure. So I was balancing all of this on top of a 12 hour, um, you know, shifts that we put in at the magazine. And, you know, I was told, oh, you, you're dropping the ball. You know, you've had to go to the hospital twice for panic attacks. Um, I think one statement was, we can't have somebody with mental health running our mental health issues running our largest account. Um, so I put a complaint in, and then I was uh, given a lovely golden handshake to leave and never to talk about, um, yeah, the discussions that we had. And like a good girl, not wanting to rock the media boat because I worked for quite influential people at that time who we should maybe I'll name some names you might know them um I did I took the money and actually it was quite good for me because I had three four months off to deal with everything that happened um but then I went back into the media industry because I needed to but with that thing of you must never tell anybody that you have mental health problems you must never tell anybody that you have a panic attack because I have to pay for my child and my livelihood and that could destroy it so you kept it under wraps and I kept it under wraps very well with drugs alcohol and plastering on a, a big smile um, but it all came to the crunch at um, my last employer when uh, they could tell something was really really wrong um, I mean telltale signs were probably when I tried to launch myself off the balcony mid panic attack literally that fight or flight instinct came over and I ran and I ran towards the balcony and it was my uh, a friend a colleague who grabbed me and was like whoa what are you doing and I it was completely like lemming was it, was it a you wanted to kill yourself or you no, just wanted to I escape wanted to run, or... escape from whatever was happening 
um, yeah, this massive office block, um, Express newspapers, so um, overlooking the Thames. Down on Blackford, they Lower Black Thames Fires. Street, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, outside, catching my breath after a panic attack, my friend was with me, and another wave came, and I just instinctively ran to jump over the, um, the balcony of the office block. Um, and at that point, yeah, it was HR, um, and they were amazing. It was, it was, I cried and I cried because I thought, oh, they're going to fire me, they're going to sack me. But no, within three days, they um, got me into the Priory and they paid for it. And um, they were amazing, incredibly supportive. And that was the, the journey into my recovery and uh, the journey into mindfulness as well. So um, even at the time when they sent me to the Priory, I thought it was absolutely ridiculous because I wasn't an addict. I have mental health problems, fine, but you know, this is, everyone's going over the top. Um, and I remember being sat in my dad's car um, and this is how like ridiculous it had got by that point, smoking weed because it was nine o'clock in the morning. Um, with my daughter in the back and me telling my daughter your mummy's going away because she's not very well and my daughter who was six at the time said mum you're going away because you're a drug addict and that was the biggest punch in the stomach ever um, but again lied to myself someone's told her this someone's you know put that in her mind and the first two days in rehab was me just sitting there thinking I shouldn't be here they all need to be here but not me um, so really kind of in denial. Um, then you come off the drugs, you go through your kind of withdrawals, um, and then what happened is the anxiety came. And I was furious because I'd spent so many years trying to combat the anxiety and the panic attacks, and now you've taken away this crutch, this one thing that's keeping me alive, I believe, and you've given me no tools to cope. And I was just sat there for weeks on end. It's still in the Priory. Still in the Priory, dry, you know, I wasn't, I was probably the only one, I wasn't even allowed Valium because I had such a cross addiction. Um, I wasn't allowed any medical um, support, pharmaceutical support, whereas those that were just alcoholics could take Valium and could take, I wasn't allowed anything. So I was like conspiring to rob the pharmacy most days. I could have done it if I wanted to. It's for their sake that I didn't. Uh, there was a lot of bartering, you know, with other addicts, like, give us your value. <laughs> and I'll give you my pudding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It took me a long time to get my head around it, all that I needed to be there. Um, and when they told me, you know, I'd, they'd say to me, okay, so, you know, what was a typical day be like for you? And I'd be, okay, well, yeah, it'd be two bottles of wine, maybe four or five spliffs, maybe six Valium. Uh, six olanzapine, three tramadol, maybe four. And uh, to me, that was fine and normal. Their faces were like, you could have died at any given moment. I was like, it's ridiculous. But because you, some of them are over the counter. Some of them are things that you give them to me, but you see, so you don't know what you're, you're doing to yourself. So it was a big wake up call. But yeah, left them with this kind of anxiety and panic attacks. So I was angry at them, you know, for not helping with that. And then I was told to go and try this mindfulness course that they put on there. Still in the Priory. Still in the yeah. Priory, yeah. And, um, you know, the Priory is not what you think it is as well. You, you think it's going to be like fluffy sippers, a little gym, a little sauna. Like, you hear all these things. It wasn't. It was, it was boot camp. It was lessons um, 
from nine in the morning till seven o'clock at night, you had to go. On, what sort of lessons? Um, so recovery, addiction, behaviour, CBT. Um, you're in like it's boot camp, you know, for eight to twelve hours a day. If on on a day where I said I can't do it anymore, I want to sleep, they would literally drag you out of bed and stay with you until you got your ass up and in there. Yeah, it was. There was no like fluffy painting or. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, the picture. Yeah, I think not, I no, 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 <laughs> it was, it was, it was hardcore. Um, so there was no days off. It was relentless, and you weren't allowed to see your family. You weren't allowed outside. Yeah, they could come and do visits um, at certain times, but yeah, for the first two weeks, you weren't allowed to see anybody. Uh, for the first two months, you weren't allowed outside, um, and then you'd get like day release down to the local shops. That's so, that's that's really full on. I'm mm. surprised about the family because I would have thought mm. any feeling that bad. Yeah, and so they the do comforts, interventions so. with the family. So you might see them as part of a group, um, but they also try and work with the family so that they get you, they get the family supporting. Yeah. Um, which is hard because my dad's an alcoholic <laughs> and um, he had a panic attack just walking in there for his own fear. So my dad wasn't that receptive. <laughs> And there was no one else, so I kind of I just plodded along on my own. It's about uh, breaking you, though, isn't it? So yeah. I think it's about breaking. Yeah, you've got it. Like, it's about yeah. you know breaking, breaking the air, breaking the pattern, yeah, breaking yeah, the sure. tension. So it's like your head, look, your head. Yeah, like, keep no, it. No escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. you can't go and live that normal uh, everyday routine, I guess, and yeah, break out of it. Uh, but yeah, so told to go along to this mindfulness session. No clue what mindfulness was. Someone said meditation, and I just thought, oh, this this is bullshit now because what is this going to do that all these kind of antipsychotic medications I was on you know they're, they're science that's science that's going to help me were you me. already on the antipsychotics before the prior or was I saying the prior I was on them before, before yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I went along and it was this middle aged woman who had her head shaved you know she's probably like number two buzz cut with this flowing scarf and I sat there full of attitude and bravado, you know, legs open, looking at her like, please. And she started off and I was just like, this is great. This isn't for me. I'll see you later. And I like literally after three minutes, I tried to walk out, but they lock you in the room. <laughs> so I was like, so I had to stay. Um, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't gel with her. I didn't relate to her, um, but I went through with it. We did this breathing um, technique. Um, you know, I, I followed it, but in the back of my mind, I was constantly judging her, judging me. This is, this is not gonna work. Um, went uh, to my room that night and um, felt that familiar feeling of the panic attack coming. So I'd started having panic attacks about the age of eight and they would be two to three times a week. So by that age, I was 30. It was, you know, a lifelong, lifelong thing. So this familiar wave came um, and I didn't have my pills, my potions, my drugs. Um, and the only thing I had to try was what this woman said, this kind of focusing on your breath just for this moment and just see how long you can stay with it for. So I did it. And that wave never reached its peak. So I was like, huh. Oh, I don't want to say there's something in this. It might be a fluke. So I did it again. And I did it again. And I began secretly 
practicing mindfulness. I would still go to her class and be very judgy and assholey and be like, new age, hippy dippy shit. And then I'd go back to my room and read everything and anything I could on mindfulness and listen to YouTube videos and um, podcasts and anything and practice, practice, practice. And then what I found, the first realization was, this is as close as I'm gonna get to drugs. <laughs> this feeling, um, because what my anxiety is like this gnawing hole that needs to be filled and it gets filled with the first hit of drugs or the first cuddle, you know, that feeling of that. And so that was the thing I was chasing with different drugs, different experiences, different relationships. Um, and this mindfulness thing did that. It filled for that moment in time, it filled that gnawing anxiety thing. Um, and then like you, you, we said before in a previous conversation, I got a bit obsessed with it. And I began chasing the dragon of mindfulness, chasing that experience. But like with anything, it's never going to be as good as that first hit or that first time. So then I knew that I had to do more with it and, you know, research a little bit more and maybe take a proper course and um, get to grips with it. But yeah, I left uh, rehab in a, a kind of bubble of like happiness like it was it was amazing people didn't know me or recognize me and I was yeah I didn't feel I had to be the old me and everything was a brand new start it was the lowest point in my life I'd lost everything my career um you know a lot of friends and family because prior to going into the priory I was I had my nervous breakdown I was probably off work for about eight months isolated I wouldn't leave my house and talk um so yeah, I merged like a a little mindful butterfly out of this thing and everyone was just like, oof, where is she? And I wanted to keep the momentum going. Um, I One thing that was really, that really got me about mindfulness and being in the Priory was that I understood what my privilege was. So um, that I was so fortunate to be in the Priory that my employees had paid you know, a load of money. I think altogether my bill was like £36,000. <laughs> um, and they paid for that. And um, that I had, you know, my dad to support me, that I had this career, that I had a more, like I had so many things. Um, and I had the opportunity to study this thing called mindfulness. What happens all the time during my mental health crisis was what happens to people who don't, doesn't, don't have this? Don't what, have one. Um, access to mental health because yeah. all I mean I made suicide attempts and my parents tried to get me private doctors and psychotherapists because to get instant help. What would have happened to me if um, we had to rely on the NHS? There was a time during my breakdown where um, I made a suicide attempt. Um, the NHS said they would get someone involved. I had a phone call three months after the suicide attempt from a student counsellor. That was the first intervention from the NHS. I could have been dead if we didn't have that privilege of getting the help we needed. So it was a massive kind of shock to me um, and an awakening that not everyone is as fortunate. And what happens to these people that don't get help? They lose their kids. So that was my thing of, you know, my kid's not going to get to school in the morning, but she is because my dad's going to help. My friends are going to help. Um, yeah, they lose their kids. They end up in hospital. They end up in prison. Um, 
they lose their job, you know, and so that, yeah, yeah, and drugs, homeless, you know, they don't get the interventions that I was so fortunate to get. And then that kind of made me think about mindfulness as being consumed by, in my opinion, a very kind of female, middle-class audience. When I was studying mindfulness myself, I felt quite intimidated because um, I'm not academic <laughs> I try but I'm not academic I was put off by some of the language um you know the jargon around mindfulness this pedestal that some of the facilitators are on thinking like I like what you're saying but I don't like how it's wrapped up how it's positioned it, it's not going to be relatable to you know this guy down the road or da, da, da. it's just about relatable to me in my life um so yeah from there I thought yeah something Something might have to change with this. I want people to get this benefit that I've got, but I know they won't be able to consume it in the same way that I did. And so from there, I um, trained in MBCT uh, with Dr. Patricia Cullard, and I trained in MBRP, uh, which is mindfulness-based relapse prevention, uh, with Dr. Sarah Bowen. And um, yeah, yeah are they both, is that Banger? Is that the Banger? No, no, no. Um, Dr. Sarah comes from Action Addiction. She's it's actually an American mm-hmm. um, intervention that she comes over once a year to um, train people up in. Um, but yeah, so and that and that was it. I got my training and then thought, right, let's get it out to people who might ne- not necessarily get to experience this, and that's. Why we're here today? <laughs> I did it, <laughs> and now I want to go back to the priory for a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How long ago were you in the priory? It is. It will be. My anniversary is coming up. Um, so it will be six years. Six okay, years. Yeah. yeah, six years this year. And one one thing I'd sort of going back mm. a long way. I wonder if you could say a little bit about this phrase used, um, borderline personality uh-huh. disorder. If you could explain yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so borderline personality disorder is um, it's quite a serious personality disorder actually. It means your emotional regulation is just not balanced. So when I'm happy, I'm hyperactive. Uh, when I'm sad, I'm suicidal. There's no kind of middle ground. Your emotions are extreme um you also then um go into destructive relationships um you can be the abuser the manipulator it is that you are that um what's the what's the one the bunny boiler the film yeah that's yeah she is yeah she is borderline borderline personality disorder um so yeah it's kind of a lot of manipulation um you know, love me, love me, I hate you, push you away, why have you gone, come back, Um, and self-harm and suicide. Uh, So one in 10 people with BDP kill themselves. When they told me that, uh, when she told, when the psychologist diagnosed me and told me that you're one of the hardest populations to work with because you manipulate the therapists um, or you don't engage at all, um, so not a lot of therapists will work with you. I was like, oh, cheers. And then she told me, you know, the prognosis was, you know, one in ten of you die and kill yourself. And at that point I thought, no, do you know what? I'm not... When I read that diagnosis, it was horrifying. And I just thought, no, nah, I'm not. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to let this be the thing 
um, and I'm going to really fight this. I'm going to fight it like it's cancer or fight it like it's some kind of disease that you have a one in 10 chance of dying from. And so I need my medication and my medication is mindfulness. And, and this, this was prior to the prior, if you'll pardon me. Uh, yeah, so um, I only got diagnosed with BDP, it was probably about two years before the priory. Got you. Um, um, not, yeah. By then, actually, in terms of the BDP symptoms, I was a lot more stable because with age, you, you do get a little bit a little bit better. It's very, very bad in your kind of late teens, early 20s, obviously with the hormones and the development of the brain. Um, but I'd already kind of come out of that real destructive phase but still had obviously my issues with, you know, <clears throat> emotional balance and, and drugs. Um, but yeah, I could see how what they were saying was true, but I wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna be that statistic. I wasn't gonna be what they said I was on a piece of paper. And I looked at it like a physical illness sure. that I had to treat. So, so mo- moving forward through, that, through the Priory and out to now, how, yeah. how would you describe your mental and emotional Still health now absolutely mental no. <laughs> <laughs> I am like um, I still do have BDP but I'm aware of it Yeah. I'm aware I'm a lot more aware of symptoms when they come so I can put things into place to help me I know that I maybe I need to rest or maybe I swap addictions so for a long time my addiction was my business um, then it, at the moment it's going to the gym and counting calories obviously as you can tell it's early days but <laughs> but I do still have an addiction addiction problem but I try and make it to make it healthy things that aren't going to kill me yeah. straight away yeah absolutely a bit um, more long-term thinking. yeah, yeah and I can still be emotionally unbalanced mm. um I think yeah it's it's still part of me but it doesn't define me because I can yeah put things into place tools into place to manage it and live a pretty pretty functional life but and not beat myself up when those symptoms present themselves either um you know i've never had a panic attack um since that first day in that room in the priory when she taught me that breath that was it i literally never had a panic attack again so there's certain things this that, is through the mindfulness yeah and that's huge yeah huge that's from huge. the age of eight so it's a, a massive learned thing that night when i go back to it and did that breathing technique she told me that was the last time i ever felt that wave of panic it's it's never come back since so things like that are huge because the panic was the spiral of anxiety and depression and just doing drug use they're just taking just fixing that one little element has made a massive impact um yeah i think yeah um it's manageable it's coping it's helping me cope and i'm a lot more um i'm a lot more okay with who i am that makes sense. No, this, yeah. the, no, it makes absolutely perfect yeah. sense. And it, it's partly why I do these podcasts mm. for this reason. You know, I spent a lot of time doing all these heavy meditations and mm. I have a similar background to you mm. and drugs and drink. And I was always chasing this thing with meditation and I'd be a different person yeah. and everything would be better and I'd be able to cope with all mm. my problems. And, and I think a lot of people have this expectation of mindfulness yeah. that somehow you'll, you'll, after a while you're handed a cloud and you hop on yeah. and, and off you go to Shangri-La. Yeah. And it's not what happens. It's no. not, and, it's, and this would be my yeah. experience is actually you just be okay with who you are. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like much. No, but, but it's, it's a huge. Massive. Being massive. okay with yeah. who you are is massive. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. And like I 
two of my thoughts, you know, I never want people to put me on a pedestal. Mm. Um, And I always say when I'm doing, you know, mindfulness that we get, get away from this stereotype of being the perfect soul. I've never been to Tibet. I've never been to Thailand. I meditate on my couch in between EastEnders and Emmerdale coming on. Uh, I like meat. I eat burgers. I smoke. I swear. I say the wrong things. I, you know, which is why my friends say to me, you are the least likely person to do that. And sometimes when I see these people who are holier than thou and mindfulness and yoga and ch- it's all about the chickpea, I think I sometimes think you're really struggling and striving to live that life. Um, I can be a mindfulness teacher and pretend to be someone I'm not. So I, I'm a girl from South East London. I talk the way I talk. I swear I'm not what you would expect from a mindfulness teacher. Um, but that is my trump card because that is, you know, the people that I try and work with, that's what's important to them, that I'm not this unobtainable figure. I'm not, like we said before, you know, like these guys that we read about go, oh, fuck, he is good. Mm. I'm there smoking a fag going, oh, I wonder if you can meditate. I think one of the questions I had in rehab, which I nearly got thrown out for, was how amazing would it be to smoke crack whilst meditating mm. and really be in the present moment with it without judgment? And they looked at me like, she, she's got to go now. Yeah. 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 But you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I never would want to be perfect. Yeah. I always, but I, I do like who I am now. And I see a lot of benefits in my borderline personality disorder. It's got me places, you know? Um, so I prefer to use that to its advantage than let it screw me over. Yeah, no, brilliant. It's, and, it's, and this is a point that's so important to make is this sense of humanity. Mm. You start mindfulness as a human being, yeah. you carry on being a human being. Mm. There's just a sense of ease around things. And yeah, we, we, we have our foibles, we have all this stuff that goes on. Mm. And I do the same when I teach. I'm, I'm at pains to point out that I'm just... I'm just a bloke. I've done a lot of yeah. meditation, but I'm just a bloke yeah. who, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like you, I swear a lot and um, I do all this stuff, but uh, it's, and I'm okay with that, and yeah. that's the main thing: being okay with that stuff. Sorry to keep butting in. Yeah, I feel what I got yeah. from it though was a profound. I don't know. Maybe this is getting a bit spiritually hippy-dippy, but go on, go for it, <laughs> man. Um, I felt this that it had been taught to me. And I felt like there was a responsibility for me to go and pass this on. It would be selfish of me to have kept it, to go back to my normal life, go back to the corporate world and look after myself. I felt this responsibility that we got more people need to know about this and not necessarily the people that already know, not the corporations, not the middle class people. This is free. You don't, it's, you know, it's, it's, you don't need equipment. It's basic. It's been there, but it's proven. Let's let's get this get this out there. So I had this urge behind me, which I guess a lot of people do once they found their own healing. They pass it on. Uh, but yeah, I did. You know, I went back to my old company, Channel Five. I was working at them, and I thanked them. You know, for paying for it and looking after me and supporting me and handing my notice in after the first week. Um, oh no, that was it. I handed my notice in 
and said, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't be around this environment. It won't be healthy for me. And I need to go and explore this. And the HR lady was like, don't hand that in just yet. And I was like, oh, she's like, give it three days. And I was like, are you sure? I'm not going to change my mind. Three days later, we were overtaken by Sky and we got a massive redundancy right. payout. It was my year's salary and some because uh, they took uh, creative control over some of my work and it gave me the money to launch Waves. So there was no time. It was, like mm. something had aligned. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Right. I always have yeah. this idea that some people is meant to do stuff and yeah. get stuff thrown mm. And the help. course yeah. of the training courses that I went on, you know, they were full. Then I got a call. There's a space for you. You know, and everything just boom, 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 fell into place. Um, so the first thing I did was I went back into the media industry because we have a big problem with drinking drugs in the media industry. So I went back to tell my story and back to kind of showcase how mindfulness was helping. And then my passion project then was working with kids and teens because um, my belief was if someone taught me this at eight years old, maybe I wouldn't have had a lifelong of panic attacks. Also at that time, and the big forgotten person in all of this was my daughter, who had lost her primary caregiver, my mum. Uh, three years later, she's lost me, you know, mentally, wasn't present for a year, and then physically not present in rehab. Um, and all the attention was on me, and not this little girl who had lost weight, who had, um, you know, sunken eyes, wouldn't sleep, full of anxiety and I was so focused on looking after myself um, to be better for her that I missed looking after her in a sense um, and um, she had her first panic attack and I just felt and she was seven maybe eight by then and I just felt devastated like is this hereditary did she learn it from me is she going to have this for life? And I just thought, you know, no, bollocks, we're not doing this. What I've learned, she can learn. And I basically took my daughter through the MVCT course, but in her language. And we did craft with it. And, we, did, you know, we made marla beads and we set our intentions and we sat with the breath. But we made like um, a little blow, you know, the wind, uh, windmill things. Mm -hmm. So we used that for the breath and we used bubbles for the breath. And um, I thought, okay, let's... Let's do this. Let's turn this NBCT curriculum into something that's relatable for kids yes. with craft and role play. And we did it. And we launched a six-week course for kids in the community. And then these kids started coming in their droves. We didn't get funding, so I was still getting a certain type of kid whose mum knew about mindfulness and yoga, who could afford to pay for the session. So it was great that I was doing it, but it wasn't ticking my kind of box in here and then um, a friend of mine um, who's been my friend since four years old um, she we were like chalk and cheese she's very straight laced you know um, she's a psychologist um, never done anything I think the only drugs she's ever taken were ones that I slipped in her drink at parties but she still talks to me uh, very very straight last two you know polar opposite people but we've always remained friends since you know four years old she was a lead psychologist at um, HMP Swellside 
and she ran, runs this thing called a pipe unit, which is for people with personality disorders. And they take them onto this wing and they give them therapeutic intervention um, to help them with their personality disorders. And she saw what I was doing with the teens and the kids and she said could you come and do that workshop in prison to my guys and I thought you patronising bitch like this is this is children you want me to come and teach like this into the prison population she was like yeah trust me it will it will work and when I, I went in there and she was she was right because the, the needs of the guys in there were so complex the average age educational age in prison is 11 years old so there is no way, and she tra- she trained in mindfulness as part of her forensic psychology. She couldn't get the guys engaged, um, and I could see why. There's no way that your average kind of prisoner is going to listen, you know, to someone with all that mindfulness jargon and da da da, and no lived experience either mm. of what they might have been through. Um, so we did these workshops. She was really impressed in the engagement and um, the reaction from the guys and we felt that there was something in it. So we kind of worked on it a little bit on the course and uh, we got invited down to HMP Wandsworth uh, to run a pilot for six months. So I basically ended up living on G-Wing at HMP Wandsworth. I was there probably 12 hours a day living with the guys to figure out what was going on for them. Because in mindfulness, we're told about the stresses of the commute, relationships, mortgage, financial pressures. These guys didn't have that. For once, those pressures of life had been taken away from them beyond their control. But what they did have was threat of violence, missing family, lack of control, um, all these other things. So you couldn't have just gone in there with a MBCT course or an MBSR course, it wouldn't have related to them. So we worked with this group of guys for six months. I lived as much as I could with them to experience and we developed um, Plan B, which is um, now a prison mindfulness course that has run over six, seven prisons and continues to do that. Wow. Yeah. That's a remarkable story. (laughs) Yeah. So, literally 12, 12 hours a day you were in Wandsworth prison yeah and it, it yeah it was a nightmare like they hated me <laughs> um, I think because I, I was there for the guys so I was there for so, the guys so who hated you oh like the staff right. and the uh, the governors loved me because we were making an impact the day to day staff not so much because they didn't understand what we were doing um, they didn't understand the benefits of it we got this kind of following quite quickly. Um, a lot of respect and momentum from the guys. Our courses, we had hundreds of names of people signing up to do the course. It, I think it was pretty unprecedented for any kind of course. Um, because, because the guys were giving feedback to the other guys. Yeah, like, because yeah, they, they, it, cause it, it's a course for them. So most of the courses in prison, which I guess Paul will talk about a bit later, is about your crime, the ripple effect. Um, you know, how has your crime impacted your friends, family, the victim? And I was going in there going, hi, this is about you and how you feel and how you think and we're going to try and do everything to get you to cope in this really stressful environment. And you might take some of those skills outside with you. Because one of the things that I learned is a lot of the offences were caused by emotions. Um, you know, reactions to things, to anger, to sadness, to love. 
um, to striving. Striving was a huge thing with especially the the younger lot. Striving. Striving, wanting, you know, not trusting in the process, wanting the house, the fancy car. I've got to get it now, now, now. Um, really, yeah. Um, a, a lot of it was emotionally based. Also, I think there's some kind of ridiculous stat. Seventy two percent of um, people in prison have border, uh, not borderline personality disorders. So there was this. Okay, I can kind of see where we're going from, you know, here. And, and a lot of the guys in my class would have been diagnosed with a personality disorder. I'd tell them I had. I'd give them more information on it because there's a very mental health in prison is just awful. Um, you know, these guys were taking pills, medication that they didn't even know what it was. So why would then go and print off? what the script is you know what you're taking give it to them so if someone's giving you a little pot with a pink pill you don't know what the name is you haven't got that leaflet inside to know what you're putting in you of course you're gonna go no thanks so so many of them were unmedicated i'm not anti-medication either i think if you need it you need it but when it's time to come off it let's cope um but something as simple as just giving guys that information helped people started taking their medication or they had a choice, a bit more of a choice about what oh, they so put in their So what you're saying, they'd be given a pot, they didn't know what it was yeah. and they'd go stuff this for yeah. the game of Yeah, I don't know what it is, I'm not putting it in my body. Sure. Everyone yeah. deserves the right. We have it in yeah. our in our medication yeah. packs, that leaflet. So all I did was print out those leaflets and give it to them. Yeah. And then they had a, they could make their own decision. Yeah. So it was little things like that. Um, and listening to them. I had an open door policy in my office. You can come in, you can talk to me whenever you want. Um, and so the guys did, and they came and they spoke and they told us stuff and we worked with them. And yeah, the officers, <laughs> they just, they didn't like it so much. But in the bigger spectrum of things, they liked the results of, you know, less self-harm attempts, calmer prisons, less violence. Um, we've done research on uh, what we do in prison um, and yeah it comes that back that you know between about 30 and 40 percent stress anxiety depression is reduced um, they have these things called negative IP so when you're naughty you get a negative entry on your system and guys that have been on my course those are reduced by 50 percent so you know they're not acting up they're more in control um so yeah although they the prison are reluctant because it's a new way of thinking it's very caring it's being empathetic it's showing them love and kindness um completely removed it's from, not punishing basically exactly it, yeah. it's the opposite yeah. which is how it should be and when we look at things that happen in norway prisons for example we know that that kind of therapeutic intervention works um so we're going away from this old victorian model of prisons and reform and punishment to this new new wave of things and there's some reluctance you know the general public you always want to punish um and yeah working in prisons you don't tend to get a lot of support from the public either you know why why is this guy getting the privilege of meditation and yoga and mindfulness like how and i you know i'd much rather my next door neighbor come out of prison and have studied mindfulness and be locked in a cage uh, for his whole sentence. Come they're coming out. out. Come out raging and exactly. They're absolutely. coming out one day, yeah. so let's yeah. do everything we can for him. And also, my other thing is, you know, when 
you know, we support mental health charities, we support kids' charities for kids that are in foster care or, you know, who have been abused or harmed. We support people who are homeless. When those journeys end with that person in prison, suddenly we don't want to know. Um, and, yeah, so I, I felt like someone needed to champion them. And I think that's why I spend most of my time doing is championing, like, these youth offenders and adult prisoners and being their biggest cheerleader. Um, yeah, relentless. I've got about 12 adopted sons. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's changed my life and hopefully, more importantly, I hope it changes theirs as well. Wow, what a story. Yeah. How, how long ago did you finish this six-month project? Um, oh, God, that was three years ago. Three years so we've been doing it three and a half years. Um, we've taken it a bit further now. So we, the typical Plan B course is eight weeks, three times a week. So, you know, if you do an MBCT course on MBSR, you go once a week for two hours. I have them there for um, two hours, three times a week. So uh, we force the practice on them because in-cell practice, as we call it, not home practice, um, is hard because you're sharing a, what is it, six foot by 12 foot cell? Depends where you're at. Uh, with a guy, you know, it's it's hard to get your, although we try and encourage them to practice anyway, you've got to meditate through the storm, through the noise and the calamity. We give them that space three times a week to practice. Um, and so, yeah, for two months, three times a week, it, it becomes their, their two life. Two months, three times a week. So yeah, eight week pro- yeah, it's a lot. That's pretty yeah. intensive. And then the aim is to get them up to a 40-minute meditation. And how long do they start with? Uh, they start with five minutes, ten yeah. minutes. Uh, by about when we get onto the body scan, it's obviously a bit, bit longer, but it's easier because they're laying down. Um, yeah, and by the end of it, we, we try and get them to, to 40 minutes. Sometimes... Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but um, yeah, they all, it's a beautiful sight when you, because I tend to take on the, uh, the more hard to manage now, because we had, uh, we had great traction in the prisons doing these group courses, but we were getting the creme de la creme, people that could be put in a group, people that could securely move or who knew about mindfulness, um, and I kept saying to the governor, like, where's the other ones? Where's the really naughty ones that aren't allowed to come to class? Or who's, you know, someone got stabbed the other day. Who is he? Where is he? And he was like, they're in segregation. You don't want to go. I was like, I'm going. Um, and so what we ended up doing was teaching one-to-one with people in segregation. So uh, we've got a team of six now, but what I like to specialise in is working one-to-one with the most violent people in prison because they don't get the interventions. They are, they commit something, they might stab someone or assault someone, they're put in segregation and then typically they are moved onto another prison and this pattern repeats itself. So they never get any intervention until they're let out the gate. So my thing was, I will come to you then, I will go down into segregation and I will work with you one-to-one, I will teach you how to meditate and we'll do this for as long was, as we've was got. It, was it intimidating? Is it, was it, has it ever been intimidating? Is there scary moments with it? I mean, there was one, one scary moment very early on with a young guy who I adore now, um, who put me to the test. So a lot of them put you to the test. So you get, if, I, if I fuck up, miss, are you still going to be here tomorrow? And I go, yeah. And I do. I live up to that. So they push you. They try and see 
how far they can push you for you to walk away because everyone's walked away everyone's left me everyone's walked away from me so you're going to do the same you say no so I'm going to push you um, so on the second kind of one-to-one -one with one of the guys he's very excited and says look miss look what I've made and he pulls out a 12 inch knife knowing full well that I'm meant to press the alarm the guards are meant to come rushing and you know bend him up and put him in segregation and I don't know what came over me <laughs> I just went oh better put that away because we need to continue and, and get meditating and he was so shocked that I didn't react in the way that I should really really should have because uh, I was in shock as well so I was just like put that away and let's get going I'm very impressed uh, but we've got meditation today um, and we got through the session and it wasn't uh, to the end of the session when he went that I was like oh my god I what the hell is wrong with you yeah anything could have happened i was hyperventilating on b-wing and um one of the guys who i talked previously came up to me and was like oh, what's going on with you and i said oh god you know this has just happened my head's a mess like i shouldn't you know because at then at that point we had no radios and no batons we aren't protected like an officer we don't have any training i'm just a civilian sitting down with a violent criminal with no support or backup <laughs> Um, and so this guy was like, okay, you can't be doing this on your own. I'll come with you. And he, he was a prisoner. He was a prisoner, yeah. So every time you do a one-to-one -one with him, and this guy was quite an influential person on the wing. Um, so every time you go and see him, I'm going to come with you to make sure you're all right and to kind of let him know I've got your back. Um, and it worked amazingly, having this prisoner co-facilitate almost because he'd done the course with us and he'd, he'd got on well with the meditation it wasn't a sense of them yeah no no it was because he was quite influential he was respected and if this guy's doing it maybe i should give it a guy and a go and so this whole thing of co-facilitating with prisoners and making them ambassadors and mentors was born from that um and yeah so now we um take a selected few on each course who have shown real passion and we get them to co-facilitate. We get them to, um, you know, do as much training as possible. We get them to lead meditations, get them to lead discussions. Um, and if they continue with that, then we work with them outside, like, like this one. Um, so we've probably got, across the prison network, probably about 26 uh, mindfulness ambassadors, people that have done the course and then work with our teachers to teach their peers um because that's really powerful you know i i always say to them i'm not i can't i've never lived your experience the closest thing i've come to prison maybe is rehab um so if you've got someone that's lived it and can pass that on to someone else it's it's the best way forward so um yeah we have these amazing ambassadors in prison and that kind of spread the good word about it get people interested and they all tend to be people that you know were violent were naughty had a bit of sway you know the the bolshy guy on the wing who's found this kind of mindfulness thing and yeah likes working with us and passing it on so we get these uh yeah these little and and to them i don't know sometimes i don't know if it is it rebellious to them i don't know you'd have to answer that where we are so different we're not your typical intervention and we're not chaplaincy either. We're not Buddhist, we're not Muslim, we're not... It's something that anyone can belong to. Um, 
So we get this It's voluntary. Do they, do they have to come to the courses or are they all volunteers? Some do. So some get put on their sentence plan that they have to do it. Um, but I would say the majority, um, the majority for the group courses, um, the big courses, it's self-referred. Uh, how how are the guys who maybe don't want to be there? Yeah, so the one oh, the ones that have been made to go on yeah, the big course, yeah. um, it's harder because they do have a lot of courses that are made to do, and a lot of these courses, in my opinion, aren't relevant, aren't helpful, aren't progressive. This is stuff you were talking about earlier about those yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they're not progressive, so they come with that attitude of here goes what, here's another one. What yeah, are you gonna do? Yeah. And then I sound different. I look different. You know, the average facilitator is probably like in their late fifties, aren't they? They tend to be again very middle class people that you know are great and they volunteer in prisons and da da da. And then in comes me with you know better trainers than them, um, and talking like this. And they're like, "What?" And she says, "This is all about me." Hang on a minute. So, yeah, um, we do win round. We have an amazing retention rate. So when you teach outside, if you teach like MBCC or MBSR outside, say you start with a group of twelve, you're lucky if you end with six, aren't you? Um, in prison, we will start with a group of twelve, and we're in, we'll finish with a group of fifteen, where extras have come. <laughs> All along the way so um yeah the retention rate is they love it because it's the only thing that's really for them and, and it's about them and there's no judgment there's a lot of love there's a lot of compassion there's a lot of kindness and yeah they they embrace it wow that's well. remarkable that's <laughs> remarkable i have to say um, and you're doing this full time yeah in how many prisons yeah. um so it is Wandsworth, Wormwood Scrubs, Isis, which is the unfortunate named one. There's the youth offenders, yeah. Where's Isis? Elmley, Willage. Willage, okay, mm. yeah. Uh, and then we'll be at Southgate. So five, we're going to be five prisons this year. Right. So you've got Wandsworth, Wormwood Scrubs, Isis. Dovegate. Where's that? Um, that's it's up towards the Midlands and then Midlands. Elmley. Where's that? Um, Kent, Isla Sheppey. Okay, yeah. So yeah, one morning I can be... Isis is, yeah. No, no, no. Isis is the Woolwich one, yeah. Um, so one morning I could be running a group on the Isle of Sheppey and then I've got a cut all the way across to West London to teach a class at Scrubs. But it's a bit easier now. We've got more people. Um, but the momentum, you know, we've done... Our, I mean, our website doesn't even work. Our, <laughs> we do no marketing. We do nothing. It's literally one governor has phoned another governor and gone, you need to check this out. And that governor has phoned another one and gone, oh my God, check this out. And so in the space of three years, it's just blown up. The research um, that they've done uh, at Canterbury University and Goldsmith University did research on the effectiveness of it. Um, it far exceeds other interventions. Um, it's going to be presented at the annual conference for forensic psychologists or whatever. It's a big deal, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it should be. Yeah, but um, it should be yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I just yeah, I just love working with um, yeah the the people I'm fortunate enough to get to work with. Yeah. It's an amazing. An amazing can, job. can you tell me just move on that? Can you tell mm. me a little bit about your practice? What do you do? What, what, what's your mindfulness um, thing? Your shtick? So I, I I am very I am very kind of I'm very true to my MBCT roots and I'm very kind of secular with my practice and so I'm gonna I'm gonna just mm. MBCT is mindfulness based cognitive therapy. Yeah. There's another famous course 
MBSR, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction, mm. the famous eight-week courses yeah. that are, um, I won't say anymore, you can look it up. Yeah, Google, <laughs> yeah, Google it. <laughs> exactly, um, so Google. So I prefer, I prefer that. So my, my practice is obviously daily because I'm teaching uh, meditation. Um, so I meditate with them. Sometimes that practice isn't as strong because you have to keep one eye open, <laughs> see what's going on in the room. Um, but it's also a reminder to me. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, my practice mainly is, is, is through work. And sometimes I wonder if I didn't have this as a job, would, my pra- would, I, would I still have been continuing with it? Would I have dipped? Because there's certainly times when I have like a month of work that on my practice, my practice dips. So, yeah, the work I think I do also kind of saves me. Um, but they don't need to know that. Goodness, so, shush. Yeah, I'm doing this for my own benefit, but you can join in too. Because um, I'm in a good mood. Yeah, because yeah, oh, sure. yeah, I like yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I for me it's it's just habitual. It is just I don't know. I, it's I'm almost yeah habitual with it. Like I find my breath. I find my anchor whenever I'm feeling you know some a sensation that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, I do have that bad habit though of pulling out a meditation or practicing when things are are in the shit. Do you know what I mean? Which everyone does, uh, but I need to learn to to practice more when everything's when everything is okay. Um, but yeah, it tends to be things like um, sitting with the breath and body scan uh, are my two kind of go to uh, places on the move. But um, sound meditation is what I love the most. Yeah. Yeah. On the tube. Um, yeah. Sounds, sounds, sounds it's my favourite. It's a very favorite. urban practice. Isn't yeah. It? I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I love it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nothing very exciting. It's very functional and stuff that I just now automatically kind of slip into with in everyday life. I will find myself doing it at the traffic lights. Uh, it's that default mechanism. Yeah, yeah. in the supermarket. And even if it is just that one, two minute of self-awareness, um, being aware of what's happening in my mind and my body, it doesn't even need to be a full practice, you know? For me, it's awareness, breath, a bit of grounding, and off we go again. And that can happen 10 times in a day. I, th- I think that's one of the things people don't realise as well, is we, we tend to think of meditation as this very formal thing, we have to set time aside for it, and actually it's exactly, it's getting to this habit of three breaths when you're getting into the shower, yeah. two breaths at the traffic lights, one breath in the sh- supermarket, and that's a game changer. Awareness throughout the, aware- the day. Awareness is, awareness is, I think, is very good, mm. because I think when you're in the shower and the water hits your face and mm. just those little things they makes a difference yeah they mm. make makes a massive difference they, it just takes you away for mm. a, a split second and yeah. and it, it it's it's it's, 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 a, it's a strange it's a strange but pleasure like it's a it's a very it's very gratifying feeling pleasure. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. it's, it's, and it, it cuts through that endless stream of thought mm. as yeah. well doesn't because it because if you you know a lot of people say i meditate you know, for 20 minutes, half an hour, just before I go to bed. And then I think, how do you handle your shit all day long? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Are you, pen- like, you like gripping on to life and then, ooh, yes, it's nine o'clock, I can finally address my issues. I couldn't do that. I'd need, I need to do it. But I mean, that's actually very time. common. That's kind of how mm. I was for a long time. I'd, I'd do this. Like, hold on until we get there. I'd go to the gym and I, that was my meditation. Then I'd come out and just get on with this 
same old shit for the rest of the yeah. day. Can I go to the gym and do this? Yeah. Yeah, forgetting that. Yeah, and then, it now, then you start to incorporate it and you relax. It's mm. easy. And like you say, the, the mm. shower's an enjoyable yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Your food tastes better, doesn't yeah. it? You know, it's, yeah. It's, it is. I mean, one of the most funniest things is when I came out of rehab and I was getting a train. Um, and you got to remember who I was before. Like, you would recognise I was aggressive. I was the girl that I did push one of my bosses down the stairs. It was only three flights, but he tightly had it coming. What was he complaining about? Exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would, it's a wimp. I would disappear for days on end on drinking drugs. But I, 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 I was that girl. Yeah. Roll on, you know, after meditation and... Uh, there's me at a train station platform I'd spotted a snowflake and was in floods of tears at how beautiful it was yeah lovely and but it was and I do like I do do these little things now like when you you know it's a sunny beautiful morning and the breeze is there like I'm really I've got new windows put in my bedroom I'm really reluctant to put blinds up because now I just stare and I look at the sky and Honestly, I can't even tell my friends because they say, think I. Yeah. They, don't worry, this goes no thank further. You. <laughs> no further than this one. Yeah. Right? It'll be all yeah. in the secret. Like, Just if you the a snowflake or a puppy, I'm literally going to lose my You're shit and cry. But it is. You spend. You don't spend. You just go through life, and you don't experience all these tiny little beautiful things. And also, I think what working with the guys in prison does is really helps me. Um, acknowledge those small little beautiful things that they don't always because get they to don't experience. Get to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. every time you walk out that gate, I almost feel like a responsibility to live for them. They always, I come in and they're like, "What have you done this weekend?" I'm like, oh, "I've been working and da They're like, "Jesus Christ, will you just have some fun or <laughs> roll ball. around on the grass?" <laughs> like, God, you know what I would do if I could taste. And we talk about things like, "What's that meal that you want?" Oh yeah, I want a steak sandwich. So how are we going to eat it? When we eat, we're not just going to, um, uh, uh, we're going to close our eyes. We're going to smell it. We're going to bite real slow. It's mindful eating, right? So let's do that with this really crappy halal sausage roll we've got here. Let's try, you know, like you can learn so much about my, they are incredibly mindful anyway, because when you're in that situation, you are aware of every sound, every mm. sense, every Hyper smell. Aware. Yeah, 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 like, me, a woman coming in, me wearing my perfume, it's a, it's a foreign smell to them. Paul hates my perfume, so you're not allowed to comment on this. <laughs> but in general, 99% of the male prison population like yeah, it. Well, I love it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And then you start to learn, um, so they get always commenting on the smell. Duh, duh, duh. And it calms them. And Well, I did most of the time, but then there was a week where I didn't wear that perfume. And they were so unsettled in the group. And I thought, I wonder really? if it's that, that familiar smell of woman and it's, it's such a new smell, smell to yeah, them yeah. as, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so little things like that, you start to, you know, you start to pick up on actually how mindful they are. So they're aware, but then they're letting their thoughts race the truth. There's a yeah. lot of anxiety, mm. a lot of paranoia. There's also, you know, I'm sitting there telling them, I need you to be in the present moment. I need you to live this, feel this, and sit with this discomfort and this stress and this negativity so that you can manage it. They are um, designed to daydream, mm. to wish for better. And I think that's the hardest thing, isn't it? So, you know, with Paul, when I met Paul, he was 11 years in, 
um, to his sentence and I'm and that was his coping mechanism for so long of this the daydreaming life during Dreams, the prison dream somewhere nice yeah, yeah, yeah they daydream that they're on a lovely beach or on a day or having this meal and I'm going no 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 come back be here so a lot of them thought meditation was taking them off somewhere else and I came in and said no we're, we're going to be right here but we're going to learn to be okay with it um, and that that's hard for them. Yeah, because it's not all, you know. That's I think that's the other thing people think with mindfulness is it was all it, it's going to be something pleasant and blissful, and actually mm. it's it's being here with the stuff you don't like. Yeah, and it's allowing yeah. that not nice stuff to be, and that's that's mm. the bit we don't like. But yeah. that's that's the game changer. That's as well. what we got to do. That's the one that really changes everything. Yeah, isn't it? so that that's hard, and you feel like you're punishing them a little bit, but trying to explain if you can cope with this, if you can cope with it, and you can sit with it you know there's more hope and there's more there's more of a chance because you can daydream all day long until that all right gov come on out you go you're going to get snapped into reality and when you get snapped in reality from that daydream you're going to be full of anger full of regret full of and what what do the guys say when when you start to when they start to get on board with this being here being with the bad stuff and the good Mm. stuff and not daydream what was the comments you've had um I think they come back and they tell me about situations. So you tell them, you tell them, you tell them, and they kind of look at you like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. And then you come back two days later and, oh, miss, do you know what? So the officer was having a go at me and I felt that tingle in my feet and I felt my heart going. And then I thought, right, what if I just don't react? And I didn't and I had the upper hand and then I was able to talk to him really calmly and he made himself look like an idiot because he was all, you know, irrational and da-da-da and I felt in control. And so they tend to kind of take it, listen. Sometimes you think they're not even listening. Put it into practice and then come back and report back. Like, yeah, I, I did it. That's a really interesting point you're making as mm. well there, that they're, they're not going so I didn't do anything mm. and I felt like a bit of an idiot. Mm. I felt like mm. I backed up, but the opposite. Yeah. I didn't do anything, and I felt like control. I was in control. And yeah. that's that's huge, isn't it? Yeah. That's that. You know, yeah, yeah, that's huge. Wow. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them have said, you know, things like that that they feel. One guy was saying how he feels more of a man. He feels like he is what a man should be now. To him, a man was being violent and reactive. And he sees the strength in. Um, what he's been given his the strength in being restrained and the strength with being able to sit with something wow. uh, because I, I think that's one of the first things I tell them is I'm going to teach you something that no one is ever going to be able to press your buttons again if you know if you put the work in that nobody's attitude or energy is going to be able to affect yours and I'm going to give you that skill and they're like okay and they can relate to that because they live in this very kind of small toxic environment where if your next door neighbor's pissed off one day they it's going to piss you off you, you absorb they seem to absorb each other's energies and negativity sure, yeah, yeah, and yeah. this gives them some resilience from that and um, I, I, I think as well what's really interesting about that is is one of the comments you, you know you, you read it and mm. 
people say all the time is mindfulness will make you indifferent you work because because it's all about acceptance mm. you become some sort of passive yeah you're just really passive yeah. you don't do it somebody did a really bad piece of research mm-hmm. a couple of years ago yeah going, you should never teach your employers mindfulness because they're coming different to their job it was a really bad piece of research mm. but i mean this this is this is the point and this is what people don't realize you actually become more proactive yeah. you become more yeah, in control and you do you do more and you're not so scared mm. you're not or you're not trying to avoid stuff yeah. you go, actually i'm all right i'm mm. going to face this and i'm going to do something about and people just don't it's really important that people get on board with this yeah. point it doesn't make you into some no. sort of bliss junkie or no something, and i think yeah. i think that's you know i'm a mindfulness teacher but i'm also a business owner as well um you know this is this is a business i love what i do but we have to win contracts um you know i don't log off, I teach during the day and I run the company in the evenings and it is, it's contracts, it's procurement, it's taxes, da 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 da. And I'm recovering from addiction and recovering from mental health. There is no way in God's earth I'd have been able to do this without mindfulness. Without mindfulness, yeah. Um, and I think some people get shocked sometimes when I walk into that meeting with the Ministry of Justice and I'm boom, 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 these are statistics, this is that, this is the cost per, da, da. and they're like, well, hang on, you're supposed to be some very lovey, floaty meditation teacher like they, dolphin, yeah, yeah you're supposed yeah. to be this one man band and I'm like no 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 this is this is what you need and I've got the team and we're going to do it and we're going to we're approaching it like any other business like any you know, like the same way that you procure um, you know clarion to come and fix your windows you're procuring us to fix your men and if you want us to do that you're going to treat us like a business you're going to pay us what we need because um, my teachers need to eat there's a lot of that in the well-being in- industry, isn't it? That you can do it for free or, yeah, you know, chuck a bag of chickpeas for an hour of your yeah, time. Yeah. No, like, well, I have to... You get a keep... place in heaven for it. Yeah. Like, what no, I need a roof over my yeah, head. My team needs to pay their mortgages. Yeah, if you absolutely. want good results and good teachers, you're going to pay for it. Um, and I don't feel any uh, kind of ooh, guilt around that. No, good. Because we are doing a good job and we care about what we do. Mm. Um and I see a lot of people that get paid and don't do a good job in those places. Um, so we do hold our heads up, and they're they're shocked that we are that I am a business person. But also, I think the bottom line. Something you were talking about earlier about you know it's not the kind of common intervention. But the bottom mm. line is you guys are going to save the prison service a massive amount of money. Yeah. There's less yeah. problems in the prison. And yeah, less need for healthcare. So officers aren't getting not, beaten up off six good, months. That's not good systematically. Yeah, they're... None of that is they good, like, but none of that is good systematically. Oh, they want the system to continue. Yeah, but, yeah. Then, but if, you, if you... Let's just say you run a, a business. Mm. Now, let's just say your business is a public sector. Mm. Imagine if you have 20,000 police officers being cut, 10... Mm. A thousand judges being covered. They don't want yeah. You yeah. have you, you have mm. no places for psychology in society mm. anymore, and then you have all these young girls, predominantly young mm. women, coming out of university with these psychology degrees and mm. nowhere to put them. Um, mm. NHS is no longer. It's big business. It's not going to so happen. You can, yeah. you can, yeah. you can understand yeah. why. I'm not. I'm, I'm, obviously, it's very, it's very, very mm. pessimistic of me to suggest that the, the government is. <gasps> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, would want <laughs> to, to have a society you? as such. But yeah. It's, let's be honest. It's, mm. Yeah, it is what it is. But if you look at, like I said, Norway is the most progressive. Mm. Um, a lot of Scandinavian. Yeah, like, but they've got super, one prison yeah, yeah, left yeah. Mm. because their receivership mm. rate is so low. People don't go on to re offend. They've got therapeutic prisons. 
and they've got I think one one, one major one, prison yeah, left. One major prison, and I think two like. There's like sm- remand. Kind of, oh yeah, there's that oh, one. Yeah, some, yeah. Some, but it's just. You um, know, but for, yeah. For lot, for you. you but the money that they've do, saved from running those prisons, they've put into child services, drug mm-hmm. services to prevent people at an earlier stage from getting into. But I, I think what's interesting is the point that at the other end of the scale is the American prison system um, where it's private yeah. and they genuinely openly have a vested interest in it continuing mm. they have the highest po- yeah. prison population mm. on the yeah. planet. Yeah. It's massive. Because yeah. we've and got they, private, they have, and they have but don't the forget harshest, we've got private prisons here too. I know, but they have the harshest, the, they have, yeah, they have the, harshest, they have the harshest prison, one of the harshest prison systems yeah. in the yeah. world, but it, and it shows that that sort of retribution, mm. it doesn't work. It doesn't. No. You can. You can. You. You. Here is a. Here is a country that's saying if you do the three of the same thing, you're gonna go away for for life. Or yeah. Free can, strike you know what I mean? Free strike rule, or or you do something and mm. you get sentenced to death, and yet you still have this spike in. So clearly, there's an underlying. Oh yeah, there's no. There's issue. no evidence to show that capital punishment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. drives down. Yeah, of course not. But yeah. but they're they're saying it's a it's it's, it's, it's a perception yeah. fact. So if I yeah, if that. I tell you that well if you do this you will die then they yeah you think oh, I'm not gonna do this by the way because mm. I'm gonna die but it, it shows that people actually they no longer care. It's like mm. being in it's like if you grow up in if you were raised in the Amazon jungle mm. that is, you you adapt you adapt to your to, mm. to your to your surroundings yeah. you adapt to your to your environment you learn what the what the the venomous plants are you learn mm. about the venomous animals you mm. learn how to you and then you become a hunter of the, the, mm. of the hunter so it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's and it was the receivership right is it for uh, for people leaving prison coming back is it something like it's really well, over here yeah oh over here in the UK yeah it's something like one in seven one in seven or one in six. What reoffending rate? Yeah, reoffending. Well, they, they they tried. They always split it. They always split. Yeah. So they split it to sex crimes and and serious violent yeah. crimes, murders and serious DVH section eighteen going up. So they always sex. They always put that aside mm. and then do a a, a generalization of, yeah. of just petty crimes of it's, burglaries it's pretty and robberies. And then they, they and then they that and that it reflects. It is pretty high. That, that reflects on it, depending on what, what side. Oh, that was to no. That's it. Seventy percent in two years mm. will have reoffended. Mm. Come back. Mm. But again, like Paul says, mm. a lot of that is low level petty yeah. crime. Yeah. I mean, I know guys who are homeless who uh, commit little crimes to come in, have a twelve week mm. break. Um, yeah, and then they're in and out, in and out, in and out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's guys, you know, just one yesterday, um, who I've inadvertently worked with over three years, from prison to prison, he's popped up, and I just said to him the other day, like, what, what do we do to stop this? Like, how? Tell me what it is you need, and I'll try and get it for you. How do we stop this pattern? And he just said, we can't. I'll do this till I die, and it is prison. Drugs, reoffending, prison, you know, and um, it's heartbreaking. Is, is, is there, if you've been doing this long enough, do you have any figures on whether mindfulness affects reoffending? Do we know anything about um, this yet? So that's the next stage of our research. Mm. So at the moment, we know it drives down offending while they're in custody. Mm. Um, 
the important thing why I said about that uh, it's two years, 70%, is because when they get out, some of those ambassadors um, we continue to work with, like Paul. So what we found was these guys, they've navigated prison well, they've got the mindfulness, and then the next leap emotionally for them is when they're released. And that's when they would start getting in contact with us again, uh, because we were that safe place in prison. Now they've come outside, they feel really kind of vulnerable, emotion, the different set of emotions now, and they've reached out to us to support them, and we do that. So that's something I do myself without any funding. So I take on probably about 12 guys um, in the community who have done our course in prison and need that support outside. Um, none of them have reoffended, And that's been over a space of three years. Um, it's, you know, how we test that on a bigger scale, we, you know, we try, but then once they get out of prison, they're hard to <laughs> track down and get them to fill in research. But yeah, I, you know, and obviously there's something, you know, with those 12 guys because they want to engage still. So maybe they have that bit of extra motivation. We can't really tell. But, you know, nobody that I work with so far, touch wood, um, has reoffended. So we can break, you know, results, I, I do yeah, think yeah. for some people yeah. we can break the cycle. Brilliant. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Something I asked you before. Mm. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, me, yeah. So I said, <laughs> uh, um, you are smarter than you think. I spent my whole childhood believing I was dumb because disle- I've got dyslexia. And I also have an incredibly intelligent older brother. He's a wanker. <laughs> Uh, well, again, chalk and cheese, you know, my brother's very academic, very good, no mental health problems, no addiction problems, good Catholic boy, we're an Italian family, I was Beelzebub, um, you know, not academic, I was talented in some areas, but not areas that counted, <laughs> um, you know, I went to a convent to start with, and, you know, they're on one of their reports home, it was serious, it was her best options are to become a nun or to marry um, into a wealthy family. Um, This is in England? Yeah, 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 80s. Private convent school, so maybe that's why. Um, And that set, you know, it set like a little tone. And I wasn't, my brother did his 11 plus and he got into this great school and uh, my brother would get into these great private schools and it would always be, the cat because he was he was um choral boy singer cool, yeah brother he played cricket for the county rugby for the county he spoke Latin fluently I mean what kid speaks Latin fluently no one these days no one and then then he decided <laughs> to learn three like super duper clever and then it was always he's got a little sister so if we give you him will you take her on. And so you always felt like oh, the underdog. And then I couldn't read or write properly. Um, and I thought... Because you're dyslexic. Yeah, I yeah. thought, you know, I'm stupid. And I never had any aspirations growing up. I got into media because I manipulated and lied. Went to a graduate recruitment um, interview thing. Told them I graduated. 
I dropped out of uni after Bullshit two weeks. Way, yeah, bullshit my way in. Then I was honest. Once I got the job, I was like, look, I'm sorry, I lied. And they're like, you're in sales, welcome. You're a mental lie. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to like you, you guys. Rise. So hang on, I can lie and take drugs and get paid for yeah. it? I'm in. Let's I've shake arrived, hands. Yeah. yeah. So, but again, you were always like working for, for someone else. I think I've just always been one of them people that people have always told me I'm not good enough or you know and I and I believed it but having done all this starting a business making it success yes, it's not just any old business either it's, um, this is a remarkable business um and you know even that like the stuff I did in media like you know I had a really successful career in media and everybody around me was had masters and marketing and they had all this great education but they weren't creative they didn't see things the way I see them um and yeah sure there's things you can't do but there's things that I can do that they can't do and I think if I had a bit more belief in myself and my talents when I was younger I'd never have worked for anyone else I would have always always run your own run business. my own thing yeah yeah tell me about a time when you've dealt with failure oh yeah failure. This, I, if you look at it, I am a fucking failure. <laughs> like I failed, you know, like I got a, a, a failed at uni, I failed driving tests, I failed at being a mum, I failed with a recovery, I failed. But when you asked me that question about failure, there's no, I couldn't think of one thing where I've sat there and gone, oh, I failed. I generally, I just don't have that in me. My mum was, we were brought up to be grafters. So my mum was always like, okay, you can't read and write like everyone else. You're going to have to work extra hard. And if you end up being a hairdresser, you're going to be the best hairdresser there was. And you're going to have five branches of it. And you're going to have your own products. Like, you you know, she was graft, graft, graft. Um, whilst at the same time telling me that you can only ever be a hairdresser <laughs> whilst your brother goes on to be an international banker, which he is now, the twat. Um, but we, I love him. Um, but... But so you, I, did, you did get on with your brother. We, we yeah, it's love hate. Yeah, we're yeah, eternally yeah. competitive. Yeah. Like it's um, we're so Just that sibling love. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah, sibling love. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, you know, you would think that someone like me could look back and reflect and go, "God, I failed," but I genuinely can't. Like it's, it's just something I haven't conquered yet. If I failed or something or not achieved it. You just go on and you try harder. We try, yeah, we try again. We dust ourselves yeah. off. We try again and we put it to one side and we revisit it. It's just not been conquered yet. Which is, which is why you've managed to do all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I think, and I've always had that despite my mental yeah. health. I've never, I beat myself up in other ways. and um, But in terms of being a failure, no. I guess because yeah. I'm so competitive with my brother. You can't. You have to, you have to keep grafting and keep going. And, you know, this waves um or me working with people with mental health was born out of a time when i was at the lowest point of my breakdown i sat you know in my front room with my mate and i've always been this okay here's the problem i don't want to hear the problem the problem is i'm sick and i'm struggling da, da, da. what's the solution i say it to everybody that comes with me don't come with me with the problem let's find the solution like we can go the problem's always going to be there the solution is what what we need so I think I've always just had that. You keep going at it until you get it right. And yeah. Last silly question. Yeah. If you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Uh, I 
I would rewind time to those special moments. I've spent so much of my life out of it on drugs, um, lost in my own head, mental health, or just living life that, you know, I've missed real key moments. So I'd like to, you know, I don't feel like I experienced those early years with my daughter, her first word, her first walk, um, you know, appreciating time with my mum while she was alive. You know, the first day at school, like, I just, I would love to go back and be truly, truly present and experience it mm-hmm. fully, now that we know what being present is. Is your daughter still practicing mindfulness? Uh, yeah, she mm-hmm. she is. She did it for a long time, and she's 13 now, yeah. so it's become a little bit of a, oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. Rebellion she's rebelling a little yeah, against it, but we, although it might not be a formal practice, we speak mindfully yeah. to each other, yeah. I wanted to take over the business. Brilliant. So, Sonny, <laughs> if, if, if people want to get hold of you, how, how would people get hold of you if uh, they want mindfulness courses? And um, yeah, so um, Waves Mindfulness, um, wavesmindfulness.com uh, on Facebook. If you want to follow the stuff that we do in prison, it's Plan B Prisons on Twitter. That's the best place. Plan B Prisons. Plan yeah. B yeah. underscore prisons okay. on Twitter. Plan That's B the best underscore place. prisons, yeah. Um, but yeah, just... Send me an email. <laughs> oh, thank you, Danny. No, Sonia, thank you so much for the time. It's a remarkable story. I think okay. what you guys are doing is incredible. I think it's really, really remarkable. And, and it's so nice to hear your, your take on mindfulness, this sort mm. of human angle. I think it's, a, it's very refreshing. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Paul, for, your, for popping in and out of that. I'm going to switch this down now. I hope you enjoyed that. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Paul Douglas, who you heard just now. Paul was sent to jail at the age of 16 for his partner murder and spent the next 12 years behind bars. Paul learnt mindfulness from Sonia whilst he was in Wandsworth Prison, and now that he's been released, he's hoping to teach in the prison system himself. I hope you'll join us. If you'd like to know more about me and what I do as a mindfulness teacher and coach, please feel free to visit my website www.monkonamotorbike.com Also, you can contact me for a free 15-minute consultation. Details on the website. Thanks.